In uncertain times, students seek truth. Your donation brings the Catholic intellectual tradition to elite universities. Act by December 31st, and your gift doubles, matched by up to $100,000. Go to thomisticinstitute.org forward slash light of truth to illuminate minds this Christmas. That's thomisticinstitute.org forward slash light of truth. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Great, terrific. Thank you so much for having me. So I understand that one of the themes of the topics that you're engaging and thinking about is artificial intelligence, AI. And so some of you were at a talk earlier um, by one of my colleagues, James Madden, who um, came and spoke to you about AI. And um, so originally we, we had tried to figure out if there was a date for me to come earlier in September to kind of give a kind of general approach to um, Thomas' philosophical anthropology and then connect that in with AI. And so coming a little bit later in with some of the thinking that you've already done on this, I'm going to do a slightly different kind of talk. The title is Human and Artificial Intelligence, What Does It Mean to Think? And for my talk is basically into two parts. Um, one of the things I think is challenging for this topic is uh, to do the kind of really sophisticated, detailed kind of arguments about the difference between human intelligence and artificial intelligence really presupposes someone knows quite a bit about both. And so you have to know quite a bit about programming and computing and things like that. Since I don't have that competency, I'm not going to come and try to give a really detailed, rich argument along those lines because I don't have those competencies. So I imagine, to a certain extent, a lot of you, especially if you work in computational theory or if you work in computer science, you know way more about these sorts of things than I do. But I know a few things about humans and human intelligence. But I also think that it, this shouldn't be a conversation for the elite either. And so what I want to try to do is a kind of demonstration of a kind of reflective thinking about the place of artificial intelligence in human lives, because it, even if it isn't something that everyone has the competency to understand entirely, the way it influences and affects us is something to which all of us as political animals have some participatory role in reflecting and thinking about what place these things should have in our, in our lives. So in the first part of the talk, I just want to briefly kind of sketch some of the general ways in which we do distinguish between human and artificial intelligence. And then the second part, I want to think about the ways in which artificial intelligence can make our own thinking artificial in problematic ways. The ways in which um, it can cause us or inspire us, provoke us, encourage us, um, manipulate us into types of unhuman thinking and how we should be cautious about that. So that's the two sort of parts, agenda for tonight's talk. So starting with some of the if you were to engage in a much more longer sort of argument of some of the major differences. The way that a lot of the machine um, learning and intelligent AI work that is going on now works on these you know, vast covariation associative systems. And obviously humans engage in types of associative thinking. And so that's the kind of closest measure or simulacrum of the resemblance that it has these, you know, the chat GPT and a lot of the different forms of machine um, 
learning that we encounter in our everyday engagements with um, computer and interfaces like that are these vastive associative systems. And clearly these systems outstrip us and do vastly better forms of association. They're dealing with you know, just an enormous database of inputs, um, the kind of parameters that they can run over it, the, the rapidity with which they can engage in computations and look for covariations, look for deep patterns that are hidden within all of these inputs, is something that clearly outstrips the types of human thinking that we engage in. But that's part of the contrast between the kind of thinking it does if we want to ascribe it thinking, um, if we want to stipulate that as a kind of thinking, as distinct from the thinking we engage in, which kind of classically is thought of as having two characteristics of not just this association, but also features of insight, where we don't actually run through all the variables, where we don't run through and look for all these deep patterns that we have a kind of insight into the essence or the essential features of things, as well as aspects of reasoning. And for more detailed treatments of these kinds of arguments and how they make us distinctively different, you know, Bernard Lonergan, the great Jesuit philosopher, writes extensively about the nature of insight and intelligence in mathematics, the role of insight in experimental sciences, the role of insight in political thinking and practical reasoning, the role of insight in philosophy and ethics. So that would be a very, very long extended discussion and then how we would like adjudicate that debate of what distinguishes the kind of associative thinking that we find in these computational systems as distinct from the kind of insight, the kind of intelligence that we also exercise. And is this really different in kind or is it um, actually something that just seems like a difference in degree? When it comes to the nature of rationality is different, there's certain arguments that have been articulated by James Ross and more recently in the Thomas circles of Ed Fazer and Antonio Ramos Diaz, who've written quite extensively about how reasoning engages and deploys definite, determinate formal structures. So arguments like modus, the role of like modus ponens or modus tollens. And that no wholly physical system can actually realize these wholly determinate um, formal processes. That if they always do it as a kind of simulcrum, and it's because we've interpreted them as, as doing that. So those are the kind of resources and arguments that one might latch onto for trying to develop these sorts of arguments in, in greater detail. But I, as I said, I'm not gonna spend much time on those kind of contrasts between the kind of how activity that these um, uh, artificial intelligence systems versus our types of intelligent thinking. What I wanna focus more on is thinking about artificial ways that in, in some sense these debates, that they need to happen. But they can also, the fascination with them, which is legitimate, and the inquiry is legitimate, too much obsession about it can sort of render artificial ways of thinking about our own thinking. Like, if that's really what you think human thinking is, it's just, you know, these complicated technical arguments about the difference between insight and association, or these complicated technical arguments about whether or not we can reason determinately and whether or not wholly physical um, silicone systems can also reason determinately. If that's the whole focus, we're, I think, kind of artificially abstracting from the way in which thinking actually functions in our everyday lives. So I have a, I have a one and a half year old, and the kind of thinking he does is none of those kinds of thinking. Well, maybe he does types of associative thinking, but the thinking of his life is fundamentally oriented towards kinds of thriving and kinds of you know, engagement with objects that fascinate him, that are exciting. It's a kind of very deeply embodied thinking a kind of thinking that arises and gives rise to different kinds of screams and cries and laughs and giggles, depending on different circumstances of the need for food, for need to be cleaned. 
the need to just be cuddled or like to sit in my lap or his mother's lap. That's the kind of thinking that he engages in. And I think we can miss out on the way that thinking is going to lead in a kind of developmental trajectory to the kind of thinking that you engage in as, as a small child, as an adolescent, as a young adult, as someone who's like older like me, as someone who's getting you know, into their senescence. Those are very paradigmatic forms of human thinking. And sometimes focusing so much on these debates about the difference between artificial intelligence and human intelligence sort of artificially abstracts us from thinking about those kinds of human thinking. So I want to return the conversation to thinking about that a little bit. And I think that there are others actually in the tech world, um, and I'm going to be drawing quite a bit tonight on um, Jaron Lanier's work, who um, is the, he's got an interesting title, Microsoft. He is the Microsoft's prime unifying scientist. And he's written quite a bit over the years, um, books like You Are Not a Gadget, since in, both in September, and um, uh, quite a bit of the chat GBT is quite a great number of interviews. So I mean, if one of the kind of things to take away from this is that you all go out who haven't watched his videos or read any of his books, that you would go out and check out Jaron Lanier's work, who's, I think, gives a kind of you know, different approach, more humanistic approach, as even he puts it to this, and that's kind of the similar trajectory that I want to take. One of the things he wants to point out is that AI is a tool, not a creature. It's an artifact. It's a tool that we use. And as he writes in um, his recent um, article in The New Yorker, if the new tech isn't true artificial intelligence, then what is it? In my view, the most accurate way to understand what we're building today is as an innovative form of social collaboration. It's a tool. When we recognize it as a tool, a very powerful tool, perhaps the most powerful tool we've created so far aside from language. If it's a tool, we avoid the kind of offloading of responsibility onto it and recognize the responsibility that we have about how we control, how we use, or how we acquiesce to others using these very, very powerful tools. If we don't reify it and treat it as a kind of creature that has types of agency of its own, of its own kind of directives and wantings, but rather it's a tool that we or others are using for their intentions and their goals and their pursuits, their manipulations or their contributions to society, I think we can get a better handle on the kind of proper role and a much less sort of artificial approach to thinking about the role of AI in our lives. One of the key things that comes up a lot in um, Jaron Lanier's work in his book, You Are Not a Gadget, a Manifesto, is the kind of ways that these tools influence us, like any tool can transform us. When the crossbow was invented, it ranged a whole number of moral and legal questions about what kind of weapons these should be used and when it would be moral or not moral to use them. Similarly, when the repeating rifle around the middle of the, the 19th century came about. And these tools always raise new ethical, moral problems for us about how we should use them and how they're transforming the way in which we conduct ourselves with respect to others. So these are sort of perennial questions whenever we introduce or have imposed upon us new technological innovations. So thinking about this tool, some of the contrasts that we find about this tool and how it gets used for us, um, I think it's important to think about the ways in which human thinking does function for us. And I mentioned my, my um, one and a half year old son. What he is, is a, like all of us, is he's a developing, dependent, rational animal. He's a type of animal 
an animal that develops. The kind of develop its requirement is very different than the kind of development of a horse. He didn't stand up and start running around within the first few hours of his birth, right? He only started walking about four or five months ago. He's still far from maturity, very, very far from maturity. The kind of life that he has, the kind of thinking that he's engaged in, is the kind of thinking that will only work through the cooperation of caregivers showing care to him, long-term care over a long period of time. So he's going to exhibit in his life four kinds of features that are not going to be characteristic of artificial intelligence at all. His life is going to be one that's transformed by the role that tools like AI have in his life, by the kind of choices and decisions made by his parents, by his peers, by his growing adolescent interest in these objects, and how those tools factor into his life. Now, of course, classically we might make arguments about the contrast between him being a developing dependent rational animal, he's going to exhibit elements of consciousness, and that might not be something that um, AI systems exhibit. But also one of the things that's different is because he's a developing dependent rational animal, he has cognitive features, right? He has desires, he has wants. And an important contrast with artificial intelligence, at least up to this point, it doesn't have its own independent wants. It doesn't have its own independent cognitive desires. It's a tool that we can operationalize our desires, our wants, our pursuits, our ends, our goals, whether they be cooperative or individual, whether they be manipulative or they be for the beneficence of others. But that's a strong contrast not just focusing on this thing about rationality or insight or association, but this, this cognitive element that it's our desires that we operationalize in these tools and how we decide to use them. With respect to that is that our rationality transforms the kind of desires and wants and emotions and life that we have in common with other animals. It's transformed by a kind of normativity of thinking about the best way to, to exhibit our emotions, to exhibit our wants, to characterize our desires. Desires that should be shaped and transformed, should be controlled, controlled so that we can you know, engage in family life and friendships, so we can have mutual types of goals and transform our desires so that they coordinate and harmonize, not just with other desires that we have so that we don't live self-divided lives, but where we live a kind of harmonized soul of desire and reason and emotion, but also so we can coordinate them with the lives of our friends, with our family, with our neighbors, our coworkers, These are all ongoing concerns for human beings. They're not ongoing concerns for these artificial intelligence tools. They're only concerns for them insofar as we operationalize them within these tools. So that's three features about developing independent rational animals that, that, that children have that are gonna be contrasted from AI. And a fourth is the key role of like narrativity, the role of storytelling within our lives. There might be a story that we tell, just as Lanier will tell us stories about his work at Atari, his work in developing early virtual reality. We might tell stories about our making of these machines, and they're indispensable for understanding their place in our lives, just like telling our own stories is indispensable for understanding how our lives are lives that became conscious through the caregiving of others, through the caregiving of others that gave us a language, that gave us a community, that gave us our values, that gave us those values that we might rebel against, those values that we might come to vindicate or reject. But the stories that we tell are kind of indispensable to our identity and the kind of lives that, and thinking that we live. So there's this crucial role of narrativity that functions within how we think about the normativity of our lives, 
the direction and the wants and the desires that we have um, and, and ought to have, and as they have transformed our, our, our connotivity, our various um, desires and pursuits. So those four features, I think, are key features about human thinking that characterize our kind of intelligence, a kind of intelligence that gradually and slowly develops out of those four features that are not shared in common with artificial intelligence systems, but are also crucial for thinking about the way in which artificial intelligence functions as types of tools in our lives. So what I want to focus on in the second half is the way in which we misuse this tool and we begin to offload virtue rather than actually having virtue be a kind of dispensable, indispensable feature or aspiration for our lives, the way that virtue provides the kind of shape the story of our lives should have, the type of normativity it should have, the kind of transformation of desires for common goods, for individual goods harmonized with respect to the common goods that we pursue with others. I want to think about the ways in which we allow these tools to sort of offload our responsibility in the realm of virtue. One of the ways that's obviously been immediate concern within universities is the way in which the, the liability for corrupting education. So classically, there's three intellectual virtues. The pursuit of intellectual insight, a kind of understanding of, of primitives, um, of a types of systematic reasoning, and then wisdom. These are the three kinds of intellectual virtues that we pursue. One of the things that ChatGPT has obviously enabled is incredible um, production of text. Right? I always check the kind of questions that I ask my students to see what kind of answers I can get back, kicked out of it. And as Chomsky has pointed out, this is just a massive plagiarizing system itself. I mean, it itself is drawing on reams and reams of data of already creatively produced material that humans have created. And based on that has pulled together brilliant, I mean, really quite extraordinary pieces of work, but it is a kind of massive imitation, a really sophisticated form of imitation of things that have already been produced, that have all the weights on the machine learning system have already have been and are continually being improved for producing these sorts of outputs. There's obviously a real concern with the role of this, because already I've heard horror stories about lawyers and others who are actually using this, and then it makes up court cases and these sorts of things, and it's being produced. But if we use these systems as students or even as teachers, we deprive ourselves of the cultivation of these intellectual virtues, right? So that's one way in which this tool corrupts it. Those of you who are in the university right now, you're engaged in an incredible opportunity that you'll never have the rest of your life to read literature and history, to study the sciences, to study philosophy and theology. And if you write essays by using these sorts of things, you will deprive yourselves of these types of intellectual virtues, of what it is to actually inform your mind to engage in systematic thinking, to engage in insight in terms of interpretation of literature, of novels, to like have for the rest of your life a kind of you know, an enriched cultivation of a history of literature, to have engaged yourself dialectically and learned how to argue and disagree and be proven wrong and show others that they're wrong, and to engage in the kind of communal pursuit of, you know, debating about Jane Austen or George Eliot. Um, you won't ever have another opportunity to do that. And so there's a huge, deep concern here of how we 
will export our learning opportunities because we have ourselves already focused so much on just grade production rather than genuine insight, a genuine kind of cultivation and education that we're very likely to corrupt our very pursuit of intelligence, of systematic thinking, of trial and error kind of reasoning and dialectical thinking, and a kind of pursuit of wisdom of trying to understand the ultimate questions of human life by just taking a meaning of life course and then asking ChatGPT to answer the prompts and write an essay that's probably better than the essay you would have produced, but having completely deprived yourself of the process of actually arguing through that and having learned from written a poor essay and how to incrementally improve and write a better essay. So I think there's obviously serious concern. And then when it you know, infects and gets into the way in which people actually engage in practices later on, so people that are writing you know, law briefs by you know, using ChatGPT that just makes up sources, and people begin to even lose the competencies to remake the judgments and evaluations for what's wrong with these. Secondly, there's also then going to be, and I think probably even more fundamentally, a type of corruption. And here I want to just focus on the, the four cardinal virtues, the ways in which if we misuse these tools, they are going to corrupt the deployment or the, the aspiration to acquire the four cardinal virtues. And you could focus in on any of the vices that pertain to any of these in particular, but just focusing on practical wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Obviously, the way that they corrupt practical wisdom is they corrupt the pursuit of trying to deliberate things and work them out for yourself. Right? That you're just using these tools in a kind of compliancy, allowing them to make the decisions for us, rather than ever gaining the competency of knowing actually how to do it. There's already lots of horror stories of people using this to think through relationships, of how they should speak to their boyfriend or girlfriend. There's already like advice about how to deal with their children and their adolescents who they can't deal with. And there's going to be more and more a loss of a kind of responsibility, the kind of prudential types of insight, of practical reasoning. But there's also going to be a, a failure of the kind of seeking counsel. That's a key feature of prudence as well. One of the key elements of prudence is that we, we engage our friends and we engage our family, that we have communities that will correct us in our truthfulness and our false thoughts, our true and false stories about that aggrandize how we behaved in some situation or misinterpreted or misrepresented how someone else behaved with respect to us. A key element of prudence is bringing in truthful friends, truthful family members who will correct us in these judgments. And the more and more we start isolating ourselves from them by always just drawing upon these research, or sorry, these tools, is the more and more we're allowing these tools to actually corrupt our aspiration towards kinds of practical wisdom. In the realm of justice, I've already sort of hinted about it. I mean, there are a range of ways in which it can corrupt our sense of justice, our, our interest in trying to get to the bottom of what is deserved or not deserved in situations. But we're going to begin cultivating more and more kind of lawyerly AI ethics of just mere compliancy and trying to mitigate risk and responsibility. And more and more we're going to be offloading that, well, the algorithm just spit it out, this was the decision, this is the sort of thing to follow, so I just complied with it. So it's going to harm, um, not just on an individual level, which is already bad enough, but institutionally. It's going to inf in, you know, influence the way that medical decisions are going to be made, about how energy resources are used, how power grids are, are run. It's going to, you know, about management of layoffs and of, you know, exporting um, industries to else other places because um, 
uh, financial advantages that can be made, and there's going to be less and less sort of human responsibility and more and more of the offloading of responsibility to these systems. So there's a really significant way in which we can allow these tools, especially when we reify them as creatures, to, to remove the role of justice and having you know, a real recognition for judgments of what is due and our own responsibility involved. When it comes to fortitude or courage, it's, I think, also going to um, mitigate these tools are likely to leave us unwilling to stand up in these difficult decisions, unwilling to make evaluations for ourselves. So we need to figure out ways to use these tools because they will probably help us with medical diagnoses. They probably really will often provide us with insights when it comes to law and provide us these um, a range of different areas that they're going to clearly be very useful tools. But we're going to need to be able to have the courage to sort of stand up and make evaluations sometimes when they're in air, right? That we have this correlated sense of justice with the courage to actually stand up and oppose them. And that's going to become more and more difficult, I think, as time goes on and these systems become perfected, when they become even more institutionalized, when the policies that are made basically in virtue of what the outputs are of these systems, rather than when the human factor is thought to be so, um, the, the tendency for human error is thought to be sort of outstripping versus the, 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 the not such a great tendency for error in these systems. And then of course, with respect to temperance, there's the ongoing role of self-control. And to what extent do we really have control over these tools and their place in our lives? Um, and some of these systems have been developing ways that can kind of nudge us and gesture us more towards virtue, right? There's already been in the tech world something of a revolution of recognizing that, you know, they're hiring lots of psychologists and neuroscientists to help them design these tools to basically get people addicted. And now they're trying to, you know, pull back this sort of biasing towards vice and now trying to nudge towards virtue. Um, you know, there's all sorts of ways if you want to take control of these systems in your lives that you can set them on, you know, do not disturb, where you can shut them off, or you can exclude them. And I think more and more that we're able to gain prudential, self-reflective control and exercise ter ter temperance, both individually, institutionally, and recognize that the inevitableism that's sort of preached about these technological um, interlopers, these technological interventions, that a kind of temperance of actually you know, gaining self-control, having the type of courage to stand up and say, why would our institution operationalize this as a, you know, a, across the institutional policy? Uh, what is the justice of this? Why are we you know, offloading all of our decision-making to this in this particular area? What are the kind of checks and balances? So there's a way in which we can deploy the cardinal virtues in the kind of harmony to use these tools appropriately. But there's also all these ways in which we acquiesce to their sort of corrupting of our aspirations for the, the, the cardinal virtues within our lives. And the final point connecting these is, you know, thinking about the common good and the role of this technology within our lives. So common goods are crucial for us as rational animals. As rational animals, developing dependent rational animals, we're also political animals. That means we need to engage in types of participatory deliberations about things that are shared goods, things that are aggregate goods or collective goods, how they bear upon different in individual goods, how individual goods and common goods are not meant to be in conflict, but they're meant to be in coordination, that common goods should enable individual goods and not in a kind of totalitarian way, 
infringe upon them, undermine them, undercut them. And so to think about common goods in these tools, we need to think, to what extent do we have shared deliberation about their interloping and interventions in our lives? To what degree do we have and can we have shared decisions and executions and enjoyments of these common goods? And one key mark about common goods is having solidarity, having a common mind about how we arrived at the decision that we should have something that we're sharing that affects us all. How have we all agreed to the decision to implement certain things that affect us all? And one thing that's quite frightening about AI is the kind of inevitableism about it and that it doesn't have a very democratic element. It's much more colonializing and imperialistic. Um, it's something that we acquiesce to it whenever we click these cookies boxes and because it's just too much work to, um, to not click OK. We, we want to have these things for free. But the freedom, or sorry, the free use of these things is often us also handing over the possibilities for manipulation, for the use of you know, our own data. And it, one of the things that Jaron Lanier has focused quite a bit on is uh, data dignity and trying to think not so much about how states and you know, large political entities could try to set policy on this, but how there, there could be a much more kind of grassroots approach to thinking about how to set internal policies and how these systems are built. And so there is a real worry, I think, about the role that transnational corporations might play in imposing this upon us without any kind of solidarity, where we didn't actually come to come common mind. There was no sort of democratic process about how this got institutionalized across the nation, across the various institutions that we're a part of. Um, so this will, I think, be an ongoing concern, um, especially when you consider the massive possibility for the transformation of jobs, um, that accounting jobs, jobs in law, jobs in even create creative areas, right? Um, SAG has had this huge um, um, uh, strike, thank you, has had the, this huge strike about you know, the use of um, intellectual property and the way in which you know, the creativity of these future scripts. Um, it's probably not very hard for AI to write another bad Marvel movie. <laughs> We don't really need many more bad Marvel movies, but perhaps you know the outcome of this is that we might actually start producing movies again, films again, rather than just things that AI could produce. But there is a real, I think, concern here about the way in which a lot of jobs um, are going to be lost to these systems, and should we allow those things to happen, and that this is just going to be imposed upon us in, in, in vast, vast kinds of jobs, um, and our industries are going to be completely transformed in the next few decades by these systems. And so a real concern about justice and the common good here, about how might we think more constructively about a kind of democratic process that would be involved is going to be, I think, crucial. And I think, unfortunately, the kind of inevitableism makes us pessimistic about the possibilities for that, that it's very unlikely that this is actually going to be something that we have a shared vision to play a role in, that it's much more likely something that's going to be imposed upon us. But I think it's very key, again, to recognize that that's because these tools are being imposed upon us, not because it itself is a creature that has these sorts of desires, that is seeking and pursuing um, these sorts of events. So I hope that this has been at least provoking of a, a number of different kinds of ideas, um, questions, problems, concerns. Um, it's probably only in the kind of local institutions 
that we work within, that we will be living our lives within, that we can actually affect much change and how these sorts of um, tools are deployed and operationalized. But it's important to have the kind of fortitude to think of like what it would be to stand up and actually speak to these issues in those sites of institutions that one is involved in. Um, sometimes being a bit of a critic or a contrarian in, 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 in to the kind of inevitabilism that is often um, deployed in sort of why we have to institutionalize some of these, these tools. Um, I haven't, as I said in the first part, just sort of just sort of sketch the kind of classical ways in which people tend to contrast types of thinking that's human versus artificial intelligence, focusing on AI being just a kind of associative system, but whereas human intelligence isn't just association, but types of insight and types of reasoning. But I also wanted to draw attention to the way that that's kind of an artificial account of human thinking, that human thinking is much more about conscious, cognitive, it has desires, it has ends, it has intentions, it has purposes but also that those purposes should be shaped in a normative way, that there are real constraints on what's good and what's not good, about what's true for us, what's false, and ways in which that gets integrated into the narratives, the stories that we tell, that storytelling and narratives are indispensable for normativity and thinking about um, our desires and how our lives are functioning together. And the second part, what I want to look at is this, this really key point that it's not a creature, it's a tool. It's a tool that we can use for good, but it's also a tool that we're very likely and have a strong liability to being corrupted. And so I wanted to run through the four cardinal virtues and think about the theoretical virtues of intelligence and wisdom and reasoning and the ways in which these tools can corrupt, but also ways in which they could be extraordinarily um, beneficial, that they can enrich um, us if we, you know, if we aspire to use them in virtuous ways. All right, so thank you. I'm told there's going to be plenty of time for questions, and there's a roving mic. Yeah, thank you for, oh my gosh, this is loud. Um, thank you for coming, by the way, and I apologize if you answered this question that I'm going to ask, like, before I was in the bathroom, so I don't know, but I'm a nursing student, and I think in, like, the last Thomistic Institute talk that we had, we talked briefly about, like, um, using artificial intelligence like in healthcare and something about like care robots or something like that. So I wanted to get your take on this, like on how like, um, you know, artificial intelligence, like if it will ever like take over some aspect of healthcare or something like that. Um, I just wanted to get your take on it. Yeah. Um Given that you have an institution here that has specialists in this topic, I'm sure that people here know a lot more about this than I do, um, especially the specifics of the, the medical bioethics integration there. I mean, I think that it's clear already that artificial intelligence is going to be, and it is already useful for diagnoses, but we wouldn't want to offload all of kind of medical diagnoses to these systems, where in which the physicians no longer have the competencies to actually make these evaluations and judgments for themselves. So there's a way in which we can have the tool that can enrich already the set of competencies we have versus having the tool and leaning on it so much that we never actually gain the kind of competencies to know how to evaluate its proper and ill-formed um, or its errors and the kind of errors and judgments that, it, that it, conclusions that they sometimes might arrive at. When it comes to the care robots, um, I think that's the, that was the, the kind of 
the, the, the real key point for you is that yeah. you, you're, you're in nursing and, and um, what about these sorts and of things? Personally, uh, or, uh, please go ahead. Uh, personally for me, like whenever I take care of patients in the hospital, like whenever they need advice on something or, you know, whether they have a question, like depending on what it is, like I rely on a lot on like my personal background in a way and like my experiences and I tell them like, hey, like, this is how I kind of got through this and you know this is how you can get through it too so my question is like you know kind of a chat gpt like it just generates like a lot of answers to that so do you think there could be like some sort of you know sorry i had this question in my head and i forgot where i was going with it but yeah just kind of like you know will that replace you know like the advice giving part in diagnosis and all of that yeah, so, I mean, one of the key things about care is that it's human care for other humans. And, you know, the objection you might raise against what I said about prudence or practical reasoning is that these, these systems can actually often come up with a better decision than, than oneself might come up with. And that why shouldn't, if, if part of morality is, you know, having the right decisions and knowing what is the right and the wrong, why shouldn't we just rely on these sorts of systems? But one of the key things about the aspiration of virtue, that flourishing is, human flourishing is constituted by the aspiration of virtue, is that we deprive ourselves of aspiring towards that kind of excellence, that kind of harmonization and self-transformation. And one of the ways in which people have historically transformed themselves is dealing with life and death, and dealing with family and friends in life and death situations. And the more and more we've isolated children from grandparents, more and more that we've allowed family members not to die in sort of like hospice situations at home, the more and more we've kind of alienated death and an understanding of death and its role within humans' lives. And so I think, you know, the sharing of stories, the kind of learning of stories, the kind of experiencing of stories, the kind of bedside manner that nurses are going to gain and that they're going to be able to communicate. Um, and some of them you know, become embittered and they become poor nurses because of that, but many of them don't aspire to that. Many of them aspire to a kind of excellence in their job and as a kind of vocation for them. And so I think that we would start depriving patients of that kind of care, the genuine kind of care of a human being that's taking care of them, but also what it does for nurses as well, that the kind of what it would be depriving of a nurse of, the kind of experience. And so, I mean, I think there's a much longer kind of argument that one would have to have on this, but just sort of focus, focusing on the, the key points that I was making about the kind of indispensable role of having humans, having other human interactions with each other, and you know, having this sort of, these kinds of connections I think are going to be crucial for thinking about the nature of justice, the nature of kinds of common goods. Alistair McIntyre in his book, Dependent Rational Animals, calls these types of networks of giving and receiving, and how indispensable these are to thinking about human flourishing and what it is to be dependent rational animals. Thank you for the talk. Um, I thought it was just interesting. An important reminder of thinking of AI as a tool. And I had a question to that point. So um, as AI improves, at what point does AI go from being a tool to being something more? Because part of it being a tool right now is that we ask it to do things like, you know, write our essay on Plato or, you know, uh, give us advice on parenting, um, but you know what? When we get at more complex problems that seem to involve more independence on its part, you know, solve both hunger, maybe 
as feasible, but uh, I imagine it has more uh, parts to it. So at what point does AI become so refined and so independent that it goes beyond being a mere tool? Yeah, so I mean, there's, there's probably disentangling two different questions within this, and, and I, I think I know which one you, you had in mind, but I, one would be that we've now created something that actually has the sort of conative kind of pursuits of its own. Um, that might have been your question, like, what if we now engineer something that has takes on a kind of pursuit of ends that it selects for itself, ends that might start coming into conflict with us? That's, that's one kind of way of, I think, taking your question. Um, another one is that what happens when um, there are pursuits that enough influential people want it to have this, and it, it arrives at answers, and then they think that these need to be actionable, that, that we need to operationalize and actually institute policy-wise. But which, which of those two, or is it different than either one of those? Um, I think it was close to the first, they both sound interesting, so give it a Well, the second one, I think, is always going to be complicated by the fact that there are already conflicting um, conceptions of rational normativity, right? And so we're going to operationalize those into the programs one way or the other. Um, and it's not likely that these are going to end these debates. Um, and so there are deep con conflicts about whether something broadly speaking like a utilitarian conception of rationality um, is what we should have as the basis for how we reason through and solve problems, or if there's going to be some sort of deontological conception, or if there's going to be some sort of eudaimonistic conception, or are these all incompatible, or are they not incompatible? And so there's already these intractable meta-debates about meta-ethical debates and, and, and as well as normative debates, normative ethics debates, that are being operationalized in these. And so there's going to be significant disagreement, in, in other words, not solidarity, and what reasoning actually means or what justice really means that gets operationalized in these systems. And so the conclusions are likely to also be reflective of these deeper kind of entrenched debates. Um, and so unless you're saying that somehow this is, you know, a becoming a philosophical system that can then solve philosophical debates and then justify its use there. But if it's a genuine philosophical system, it's always something that can be philosophically objected to as well. And so it's not really going to transcend that. Um, but as for the agency system, I don't see anything in principle as to why those systems couldn't develop something like um, ends and pursuits. Um, but it also might be something of science fiction as well, or it might be the sort of thing that we want to think seriously about not allowing that kind of thing to happen, or and to take great steps in thinking of ways to undermine something like that if it were to come about. Um, that's the sort of thing that I think, without genuine like solidarity and commonness of mind and green to that sort of thing coming about, is, is is more worrisome. And that might be the sort of some of the more kind of doomsday apocalyptic conceptions of it is that it, when it has starts to develop agency and ends of its own, ends that it can actually act upon. That one, that's when I think it starts getting frightening. Thank you. So, thank you so much again. Um, Ratzinger in his his uh, article like on technology, technological security as a theological issue, talks about the problem of seeing technology and technological products not as a means, uh, not as a means to the end of developing human perfection, but rather as an end in themselves, as 
one of the problems which gets uh, that gets, I guess, technocracy rolling. I'm wondering um, what, how is that, what should be the measure for determining um, whether or not we are seeking AI as a product as an end in itself or, um, or whether or not it's being facilitated towards human perfection and in the conflict. Yeah, I think there's probably not like a one-size-fits-all answer to that question. I think that there are people who have genuine like scientific wonder, right? And they want to see what they can create and they want to see what they can generate. And I think that that's, you know, that's a sort of laudable conception as long as we also don't allow the scientists to not think of themselves as a human, that's a part of the human community. Um, I think it was John Stewart who made a joke that the way in which the world's going to come to end is someone in a lab somewhere all of a sudden doing something and it worked. And very quickly after that, the human race is over. Um, so as long as we don't have scientists who think just with that laudable pursuit of wonder and wanting to know the truth and wanting to know how they can do something, but also think about themselves as human beings that are part of a human community, that's a crucial thing. And that takes a type of education that you know, really instills that in them. And that often takes a type of education that's not going to be offloading the humanities, where it's just either passing you know, tests. Um, that's not really the way to like, inform the mind of the tests I mean, or, or, or the humanities. But worse, if they're only writing their essays on Plato, by using ChatGPT and writing probably a better essay than I could write about the cave, but depriving themselves of the kind of reflection that's necessary for engaging critically about that. And, and, and many scientists do think very critically about normative issues and have real concerns and real worries. Um, so so that's, that's one way in which you can pursue it, I think, as an end in itself, and it's a completely justified way of pursuing it as an end in itself. Um, as soon as these systems get monetized, it raises lots of types of questions, and most of them are monetized, um, about what, what role they're playing. But then a lot of people, you know, they go into the private sector as scientists, and they're working there, and it's, you know, people have jobs, and it's completely just to have a job. Um, and um, when you have produced various products and people want to purchase them, that's also you know, just to set a price on them. Um, so it's a it's a tricky question. I don't think that we should allow ourselves to think that there's like a, a straightforward answer. Um, part of it's going to be reflecting on the way in which we're using this. Am I using this and deploying this because I'm trying to manipulate a number of people, or am I using this in a way that's trying to contribute to human flourishing? If it's trying to contribute to human flourishing, are there other people that are also involved in the process of deliberating and deciding and executing this? Are they taking responsibility, or are they just being compliant with what the outcomes of the systems are? So I think those are the kind of questions that have to be asked to think through. Is this an end in itself, and is it a problematic end in itself? And then if it is a means, what, what, are, what are appropriate means and what are not? Uh, so I was asking, uh, one day, you know, like, you know how we have personal limitations as humans and the fact that like, we only know conditions, but the idea of, like, uh, we can't even imagine infinity in the, like, the purest form. Like, even when we try to imagine infinity, it is still a conditional number, it's still finite in our minds. I was wondering, since AI is developed by humans, if AI is able to surpass these conditions of humanity, and whether these AI like, implications and technologies are able to still have these boundaries of human limitations like we see today in our own minds. Like, would AI uh, be able to break the bounds of the human minds, even though we are creating this idea of AI? Yeah, so I think probably some of the tests here would be 
so this kind of goes to the first part of the talk that I said I don't really have the competencies to, to, to spell out in detail um, a, a rigorous defense of the view. So the, the, the argument I mentioned that comes from James Ross, which has been developed a lot by my colleague Antonio Ramos Diaz, who does work on um, philosophy of computation and, and these sorts of things, he's argued at length that uh, types of definite formal operations that we perform can't be realized in wholly physical systems. And so that has a lot to do with types of mathematical operations that we perform. So he would, he would make the argument that there's something about physical systems that can't realize these types of different operations. They're really performing a type of simulacrum. So it'd be worthwhile to pursue that kind of argument with someone that has Antonio's competencies to see whether or not um, he's, he and James Ross and others are right about that kind of, and actually James Madden, who you had recently, he's written about these arguments as well. Um, I think some of the tests, though, you might have are if we had real breakthroughs in theoretical physics or real breakthroughs in psychology or neuroscience that were not just drawing upon vast amounts of data that we already had, but like genuine insights that, that weren't just imitations or you know, bringing together and finding hidden variables, um, but like real genuine insights in these areas that were produced by these artificial intelligence systems. Um, that would be ways that would show that it had actually, in fact, outstripped types of human insight and actually had kinds of human insight. Um, but I think probably part of my argument, too, would be that I think that those things would be a longer argument, that they're inextricably tied up with the connotivity I mentioned before, um, that there's something about agency and intention of the pursuit of purposes and, and tied to sense of wonder that I think insight is bound up with. Um, but that's just sort of, you know, that would take longer to argue that. And I think that one thing that might undermine that claim would be examples like I just mentioned. So, right, if like the breakthroughs in cosmology in the next few decades, which are definitely going to use AI systems, if there are any breakthroughs in, in, you know, fundamental physics in the next two or three decades, four decades, five decades, Obviously, they're going to be deploying artificial intelligence systems to arrive at that. But is the actual insight, the kind of insight like Newton and Einstein gained, or you know, if they can achieve those kinds of insights, that will be something that I think completely you know, shows that whether or not they transcend the human intelligence, they actually are achieving a kind of insight that's like humans. Thank you very much. Coming back to this idea of AI as a tool, which I think we would say at least right now, that's the maximum capacity for it. The issue of prudence, it seems to me AI is very consequentialist in its own right. That's why it's there to produce something for us. There's, when we get to the issue of prudence, I think there's sort of two ways to approach it. There's regulation, which is a whole other question of what the government or some other agency should do. But then there's also formation in the proper use of it. So I'm, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on what kind of formation we ought to be considering before deploying AI across the board. Um, I think, for example, like doctors, right? They've got four years of medical school before they can cut you open and give you these pills, which are beneficial, but they also do serious harm. So I'd be curious if, you, if you've had any thoughts on what type of formation we should be employing before we deploy AI. Yeah, it, it, it's, an excellent, it's an excellent question. I think that some people involved in like early child development and education probably would have a lot more to say about this. So what I would say is more anecdotal based on things that I know that are being implemented at schools and, and things like that is 
is making sure that the kind of traditional competencies that we've been able to achieve without using these tools are, you know, ensured such that we aren't actually, again, offloading all these skills or allowing these systems to sort of infiltrate or interlope and, and, and cause impediments. And I mean, the data that's been coming out, there was a new report even a month or two ago about the use of screens and um, systems on children development. It's just, it's, it's terrifying um, uh, how, how bad it has, like the kind of long-term influence, the, the types of social anxieties that, that children have from being involved too much on, on, on types of social media, social networks. Um, to just um, the kind of addictive potential that these things have. So obviously like types of temperance, but a lot of like parents being more actively involved and not just you know, trying to offload everything to teachers. Um, you know, returning to types of active community involvement. So I realize this is kind of like punting. It is punting. Um, but I think this is a, like a very serious question and a very challenging one, I think that you're quite right, that we need to think more seriously about the kind of formation, and there's a lot of good data that can be used for helping us to think about those decisions. And I think um, the kind of inevitable push to having you know, laptops in front of every single kid, these initiatives and these funding for this, this is very short-sighted, and it wasn't um, the best kinds of policies that should have been developed. And we need to think much more, I think, critically about the kind of making sure that we aren't depriving them of certain kinds of formation. And that's why, again, like because of ChatGPT, you are finding more of these places are waking up and institutionally setting policies of not having computers in rooms or having them you know, disconnected to making sure that people are actually learning to write, that they're learning to actually think in their writing and in, in these activities. So I, yeah, I mean, the whole gist of my talk is that you know, in cultivating um, the cardinal virtues and thinking about them, we need to think much more about how the formation is going to be involved in the people that use these tools in the appropriate kinds of ways. Um, can I take like one or two more questions? Okay, so you mentioned that AI has the capability to write bad and horrible movies, and that uh, this might inspire us to write better movies. So my question is, what's fundamentally human about creativity, and can AI help us to reflect upon this? I mean, one of the things that it does disclose is how crucial, I mean, it's not as if we didn't know that association was really deeply involved in, in human creativity. This is, this is something that's always been the case and recognized, in, in, especially in, in painting and music. Um, and so AI definitely shows how if you have a database and a deep, deep comparative um, co-variation kinds of system that can make associations, you can produce images, you can produce music, and you can produce um, text, word, that is, is incredibly creative in nature, right? But the originality of it comes from the type of um, co-variation, the type of association, that, and, and, and the, the kind of cleverness of the prompt, right? I mean, we're the ones setting the weights in some sense by giving the kind of prompts that it has. So I think that's one way in which it was known already that association was a huge, played a huge factor in human creativity, but I think that this shows you what happens if you have just such a deep, web of associations, that if you combine it with the kind of insight and evaluation that is also integral to human creativity, that you can produce all these incredible things, both things that are like, you know, hilarious, but also things that are quite terrifying for the kind of disinformation, as well as things that are, that are quite lovely and, and quite beautiful. Uh, so, you know, there's 
there's room for the good, the bad, and the ugly in the kind of creativity of, of what we can deploy these systems for. But of course, the thing that a lot of people are worried about is the kind of imagery. I mean, just think right now, I have actually looked at, you know, with the conflicts that are going on right now in the Middle East, the kind of escalating violence that can occur if people are producing images that are just not true, but producing video or things like that. You can just imagine how fast things happen in the real world and if you're just producing things that are just and how you can ever like track that down in real world time that's required for making crucial military judgments is quite terrifying actually. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a great question and I, I, I hope I kind of danced around the right kind of gesturing at the right direction that association is a key thing of creativity, but also there's this element of evaluation and insight as well. And that gets played into the prompt often of, of what, what we're trying to generate and then the association draws on a huge data stream to make the, these sort of original images. Yeah, the marble thing was kind of a bad joke. Um, uh, if I can ask a follow-up, I guess, do you think that um, this reflection upon like what is human about creativity will actually push an improvement in creativity? Like, will we offload the, I guess, like popular fiction, popular media onto AI? Um, well, given the increasing um, human proneness to just consume and binge watch bad things, the likelihood for us to want to just even have more of this around and indulge in it is, is I think, unfortunately, pretty likely. Um, so the aspiration for like disciplined creativity, you know, wanting to have cheap disposable furniture, cheap disposable clothing, you know, there's a real tendency that has moved us in those directions. So I think, unfortunately, yes, I mean, that, that is unfortunately likely, more likely to be the case. Um, but part of it was meant to be that we should aspire to something more. And that's why we have artisan movements that are coming back and people after COVID learn how to make bread again. And, um, you know, people started learning how to like carve wood and make furniture and sew. And, you know, there's a place for some of these things and the aspiration for looking for the kind of nobleness and these kinds of making these things for ourselves rather than having them be offloaded by others doing it. And then this is the last question. Right, I have two questions. The first one is about the insight that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so there's most of what we've um, heard until now is being about like more the kind of machine learning that has some examples of learning from examples, but there's other terms that only learn from an outcome. That only what? Say again? All, all learn from an outcome, meaning, for instance, the, the machines that learn how to play chess, um, they mm -hmm. don't really have examples. They just play tons of games, and they learn how to play. And a lot of great uh, chess players have kind of said, all these things like they have some special insight. So how do we distinguish this from the kind of machine learning that learns from examples, like supervisor income, but compared to reinforcement learning, is just learning from, from the outcome. And then my second question is, how can we dialogue with the materialists? I had a chance to talk to, or to, to, yeah, to talk to like a guy in the literature of Google, and his whole thesis was, whatever we think intelligence is, chatting together with, or like their own model that they have, right? Um, and at some point, he mentions like, unless you pose something weird like a soul or quality, I'm like, okay. It seems like you're speaking two different languages. Um, 
So how can we reach that? Yeah, so those, I think, fell within the territory in the first part of the talk that I was sort of setting off limits for myself <laughs> due to lack of competency. Um, I don't think I know enough about the machine learning systems that you were referring to that are outcome-based, um, that are what the argument is there for why it's thought that this is sort of an insight. Um, was that the point that it's, I mean, that sounds to me like a closed system um, and a closed set of parameters, and then it just can master that. And it's not really clear why there's, it, it, I mean, it seems that it's more like insight, it would look like in like the systems of like the AlphaGo, um, and because it, that much more resembles a kind of open system in the way that chess is much more restricted, I would think. Um, and I, I, my, my understanding is that it was thought of much more of an achievement when the AlphaGo had, had the victories over the human competitors just because it thought it was sort of an endless open system. But I, I, I could be mis, misunderstanding, but I think that I'm going to punt on this, but the, the, the issue comes down to whether or not human insight and intelligence is anything more than just discovering deep patterns without like running through every single association. So is it just, is insight just an association? So it, it's just, but it's an association that works on like minimal data and is open and can find the hidden variables. But yet there's no difference in kind from that, from a system that does it by running through every single um, variable and finding the deep pattern that way. So that would be what the, the crux of the argument I would take it to be is the disagreement between if there's a sense of insight that's not the same as just association. And as I, I punted on that one right at the beginning of the talk um, for someone else to carry out um, that, that sort of argument. And the second one was, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, this, this particular approach that I was taking isn't really trying to be like materialist versus people who believe in the immaterial or something like that. It was meant to be more at the level of um, what do we mean by reasoning and what do we mean by like normativity and how is reasoning constituted by types of um, rational and ethical normativity. And I think that you can't abstract those from what human thinking is and from what human intelligence is. And it's not clear to me that you can understand that apart from connotivity, as I was saying, like the kind of agency and desires and things that, that we have of that sort. And so until these systems start doing that, they're just going to be imitating the kind of reasoning and drawing on the data of, of what humans have other, otherwise done, but it's not going to be like acting on it or pursuing various goals. So, I mean, they, they're right that they might be able to like imitate all these types of reasoning and, you know, what would be the best thing for me to do with my girlfriend under these circumstances? And, you know, we've known each other for this long and this is the story that I have. And, you know, it might even come up with a better decision than the person actually ends up making. But if it doesn't have this goals of its own, and if it's not like actually like cognitive, and if it's not normative, it still seems that it's radically different in kind from what the human is. But maybe I'm missing the gist of the question, the second one. Well, let's say you could program uh, some, some purpose or some Sure, but then it's just a tool being used by a human to do that. Whereas the point about humans' pursuit of goals and ends is that you know you can all encourage me 
to stop talking and to like stop, but it, it's going to be up to me to make that decision at some point, or at least someone, you know, I could keep talking even if they shut the microphone off, right? Um, but that's very different, right? I mean, there's a kind of internal origin. Um, and it, I mean, I don't think the point about consciousness is, is beside the point either, right? The kind of intentional agency I have is one of which I'm aware of my purposes and ends. Of course, there's this whole complicated subpersonal neural system that's like throwing up prompts and like, you know, the soreness of my throat might be encouraging me to think about stop talking, but if I'm trying to make some point about it, it's up to me being the originator of deciding when to stop talking, I'm going to keep talking, because just to kind of demonstrate the point. So does that make sense, the, the, the gist of the response? Yes, do you mind if I hold very quickly? It's more about the organizers. Uh, <laughs> Ship, oh, they're very generous, they're very, very generous. But do you see there, I mean, it was up to her and then up to you, I mean, you could have kept talking, you're still holding the microphone. So I, I guess what I'm thinking is, is maybe it is program like maximize uh, pleasure and reduce pain, and from that it learns purchase. <laughs> so like, this like you should like practical this this what you should and this what you should not do to maximize pleasure and reduce pain. I mean, part of the thing there is that it, it, it it's not a bodily organism. It's not a it's not a living thing, um, and it doesn't have. I mean, it doesn't need, it doesn't have like a sexual drive, it doesn't have a, you know, a, a need for the type of nutrition that we get. There's not going to be ethical questions for a bit, or the same kind of ethical questions about how it gets nutrition from some kinds of critters, and not other kinds of critters, and under what circumstances it gets them. And the virtues aren't independent from being an animal, right? They're part of a transformation of a set of complexes of us that are often driven in competing directions, right? We have a range of desires that are drawing us in different pulling us in different ways. And part of the idea of the virtues is bringing about a harmony of soul, a harmonization of all these different capacities, and not just an internal harmony, harmonizing myself with respect to the common goods of others. I mean, why would you want to make a system that imitated all of that to that degree? But it would, at that point in time, it would start looking like it would, you know, it'd become like a biological thing. It wouldn't be this silicon-based thing anymore. And like, it's getting pretty far away from you know, it just really is just trying to create something like us. But I don't really quite get the point there, and it's certainly like worlds away from anything we actually have right now, and also kind of worlds away from like why this might be useful and why we might want to produce it. Does that, does that answer the question of like how far away it is from even thinking about why the virtues would be needed? If it was a thing that did gain agency, the cardinal virtues for it would be quite different. Um, because it wouldn't have the kind of animal desires, it wouldn't have the kind of animal needs. It would have whatever kind of needs are, you know, it would be in, in fights with Bitcoin and all the Bitcoin machines that are like burning all of this energy up, right? Because they want to use that energy for themselves rather than allowing all these huge, um, yeah, Bitcoin, um, what's the correct word for it, whatever, what? Mining, yeah, bit, Bitcoin mining, right? That they would be engaged in like territorial and energy debates with these sorts of systems. But, but, but then the virtues for them would look very, very differently if they were to gain that kind of agency. It wouldn't be the same kind of virtues that we have. It wouldn't have virtues of celibacy. It wouldn't have virtues of um, chastity and abstinence, and it wouldn't have these kinds of virtues. So thank you again. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, 
please consider showing your support at www.themysticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.